Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Claire Herbert, assistant professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. A UO alumna, she earned her Bachelor of Science degree in sociology and political science in 2006 before going on to earn her MA and PhD in sociology from the University of Michigan. Herbert's research interests include crime, law and deviance, housing and homelessness, urban sociology, race and ethnicity, and poverty and inequality. Her monograph, A Detroit Story, Urban Decline and the Rise of Property Informality, was published in March 2021 by the University of California Press. Thanks, Claire, for coming on the show and congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you so much for having me. So what led to your interest in sociology, especially urban decline and homelessness? Uh, well, my interest in sociology actually started as an undergrad at U of O. I was studying architecture and while I, I loved architecture and the department, I we started learning about um, how you know freeways would bulldoze through poor, um, primarily minority communities, and I started being really concerned about what was happening with those communities. And so I took a sociology class and uh, ended up switching my major and <laughs> continuing on with that. Um, and the communities declining communities in particular became of interest after moving to the Midwest. Um, having grown up primarily on the West Coast, the, the Midwest was spatially very, very different. And um, my graduate program was about 45 minutes outside of the city of Detroit. And so after exploring the area and seeing really how different the city looked from anything I had ever seen before, it really interested me in I wanted to learn more about how it came to be like that and what it was like for people living in declining cities. So why don't you tell us how Detroit came to be like that? What did you learn about that? That's a great question. And, you know, it's really not just a story of Detroit. It's a story of many, many other cities across the U.S. that have experienced uh, deindustrialization, shifting economies, um, a lot of white flight from um, from urban centers, right? So you have these, you know, centers of poverty often with racial minorities living there, and then the suburbs with a lot more wealth, um, predominantly white populations, and those shifts um, combined with interpersonal and institutional racism on the part of various institutions, from realtors to the federal government, um, really shaped um, or exacerbated the the decline of these cities, and. Now, you know, 40, 50, 60 years later, after these declines started, you have cities that were built for uh, populations that are much larger than what they have. So there's infrastructure, there's, you know, vacant housing, um, and then there's also a population that does not provide enough or cannot provide enough um, in tax revenue to really support um, the city as it was built. So these situations and all kind of compound and mean that you have a lot of cities sort of struggling to take care of what's there and struggling with high poverty rates, um, high unemployment rates, very deteriorated built environments, things like that. So let, let's talk about a Detroit story, urban decline and the rise of property informality. First, let me ask you, what is property informality? That's a, a sort of term I coined for this work because what I'm, what I'm studying is practices that technically violate different laws and regulations, and in this case, particularly property laws. Um, but these are also practices that come to achieve a level of informal legitimacy. And there's this 
amazing rich literature on informality in parts of the global south where you know the way that sort of people um, either get by with sort of underground economic activities or um, the way that squatter settlements kind of arise and form um, informality really comes to shape cities in the global south and there's a lot of recognition um, that these processes are going on and having a big impact on people's everyday lives but we haven't really translated that framework much to parts of the global north like the United States. And what I found in Detroit was that despite the fact that a lot of people are violating property laws, it wasn't really always seen as a bad thing, but it was oftentimes viewed very positively um, and came to have this kind of sense of legitimation even though it was technically illegal. So this framework of informality was really well suited for making sense of these practices and how they shape the city. And so. In the book, I draw a lot on scholarship from the Global South and kind of reverse the typical um, direction that we often think about, you know, intellectual insights. Um, oftentimes we're trying to take ideas from the Global North and sort of apply them to the South. And I try to do the opposite there and think about what we can learn about cities like Detroit by um, focusing on the informal dimensions that shape the city and people's lives. So tell us a little bit about the different ways that people who are uh, living, who are, who are unhoused in Detroit are coping with housing insecurity and homelessness. Great. So in Detroit, the, the practices I focused on most explicitly were squatting, which is illegally occupying you know, properties that you don't have a right to be in um, or living in homes you don't have a right to be in. Um, people who are scrapping or salvaging, which is taking apart or taking materials from property and oftentimes selling them or reusing them in home renovation projects. And then um, the occupation of vacant land as well for gardening, farms, yard space, parking space, et cetera. Um, so that, you know, the housing instability piece of it really falls under squatting. And in cities like Detroit, I argue that squatting is really just another mechanism or, or practice that people who are unstably housed or homeless use to get by. So in other cities, we might think about, you know, the predominance of doubling up when multiple families, you know, live in a house together, often very overcrowded conditions. Or um, we think about, you know, like New York City, for example, has a, a very large shelter system. So people live in homeless shelters. But in cities like Detroit, a lot of people are moving into vacant homes and living in those um, oftentimes as kind of a, an in-between space to get by between you know, one and another form of more stable housing or oftentimes even for multiple years um, because it's really the best sheltering option that they have available to them. So you did ethnographic interviews with a, a number of people who are uh, who are squatters in Detroit. Tell us some of the things that they told you about why why they do that and what, what how they feel about it and what their attitudes about it are. Definitely, that's a good question. So there is actually a lot of variation among the squatters in my research, and I categorize them in order to help make sense of this variation. So kind of on, on one end of, if you think of it more of a, as a continuum than discrete categories, at one end you have people who I call um, necessity squatters. And they are people who are living in, in vacant or abandoned houses because it's really their best option for finding shelter because they can't afford to rent a place that suits their family or their family size because otherwise they would be homeless or because they don't want to um, stress relationships with family members or friends by doubling up. 
And then at the other end of the spectrum are what I call lifestyle squatters or homesteaders. And these are people, oftentimes in my study, they were, um, they tended to be a bit younger, um, oftentimes white residents who had moved from elsewhere in the state of Michigan or even other parts of the country and had moved to Detroit and started squatting more as an avenue into property ownership. So sometimes it was adventurous and kind of fun thing to do initially. Um, others explicitly sought out a property to occupy that they knew they would be able to purchase um, in order to kind of gain entry into home ownership that way. And these um, lifestyle squatters tended to be more stable, um, have you know more um, economic resources than other squatters. And then kind of in the middle are those I call routine appropriators or routine squatters. And these oftentimes were longtime residents of the city who had some, you know, sort of modicum of economic stability. Most of them were employed. You know, they had had relatively kind of stable lives, um, but they found themselves um, in a property that was foreclosed on while they were living there, either as renters or as a homeowner, and they decided to stay. And um, so, these technically, I think, in sort of the legal realm, this is called like holdover um, tenancy. And so I call them holdover squatters as well. And again, these are people who either they were squatting to maintain um, access to their family home that they had lived in for a long time, or for renters, sometimes it was that they just decided to stay as long as they could um, in order to have um, access to free housing for a while until they were forced to move somewhere else. Um, so those are the three sort of predominant arenas of squatting in the city. And how does the city of Detroit's, you know, police, the government, how are they responding to the phenomenon of the of appropriators, squatters? Um, are they differentiating between these three different types that you've identified? So I, this is one actual, actually something that I think is concerning is that I don't, I don't, see enough recognition on the part of officials that there is this variation in sort of the motivation and the level of resources, et cetera, that different squatters or, or appropriators generally have. And so um, while the more privileged lifestyle appropriators are able to formalize their practices and you know buy the homes that they're living in or buy the land that they're occupying to farm, um, that's often not sort of in the realm of possibilities or even desires for people who are very low income, who are otherwise homeless. A lot of the time, the squatters in my study who are very poor didn't want to take on the legal responsibilities of ownership, but they still wanted to be able to stay in the property because it came to feel like home to them. It was the most stability that they had. And they'd really, you know, turned that, that place into home. And, um, well, I think there may be some more promising, or I'm hopeful that there are some more promising responses on the part of the city at this point in time. When I was doing my research, um, the response was largely to um, sort of, an, there, there was very little enforcement of property laws for, for these very deteriorated houses that, you know, really there was no market for them. No one was really interested in them other than the squatters. So oftentimes those were kind of ignored. Officials looked the other way, um, but there was is an increasing trend to criminalize squatting across the country, which really creates more vulnerability for people who are already very in very precarious situations. So 
one of the goals of the book is to offer policy directions or solutions mm -hmm. given the findings that you discovered. So tell us a little bit about some of those recommendations. Uh, yeah, so on a broad scale, I think this requires us to rethink or at least reflect upon kind of the dominant private property regime that we have in this country and recognize that it's actually the, the fact that we have this, the, that we privilege private ownership so much that there is very little room for other forms or other ways of sort of relating to property. Um, and so I, I first sort of urge policymakers to reflect on that and to think about what other ways can we establish relationships for people to have to property that allow them to access the resources, the benefits, the stability that property can provide without it having to fit this legal private ownership model. Um, so we can think about alternatives like um, you know, community land trusts that we see some examples of in other cities. But I also argue that the city would the city as a whole would benefit from creating some systems to allow people to remain in the properties that they're occupying without being under the threat of, uh, you know, of being kicked out or being um, punished for their occupation, because that adds on this layer of, of difficulty and um, sort of unpredictability for people who are already in vulnerable situations. And to, um, to recognize that sort of the ownership model is not going to be a good fit for all people in the city who are occupying property in various ways. So you are now uh, back in Eugene, Oregon, yeah. and uh, Eugene, like many places on the West Coast, has an, uh, housing insecurity uh, challenges. Yes. Um, What's what's different about this the status of housing insecurity in Eugene than it is in a much in a very very different kind of environment uh, Midwest that, you know that's a really great great question and it's something that I've been reflecting on a lot being back here um, and in a city like Eugene and a, and cities along the West Coast especially one big difference is that there is not the level of property vacancy that really provides this informal um, sheltering method for people who are homeless. And this last um, homeless count that we have numbers for, which is just prior to the pandemic, this is the first time that, um, that the federal government did the point in time count and found that there are more unsheltered homeless people than sheltered homeless people in the country. This means that we are seeing, I mean, everyone in Eugene sees it. This is people living in tents, living in vehicles, in RVs, in you know, self-built shelters. Um, and it makes homelessness much more visible to us. Whereas in cities like Detroit or Philadelphia, where I was before coming back to Eugene, um, homelessness is much more hidden because people are living in vacant buildings um, when they don't have legal access to shelter themselves. And so in a place like Eugene, it's more visible, but it's also potentially much more precarious for people because you're, you don't even have a, a formal shelter to be living in. You're living in a tent in a, in a oftentimes very rainy climate, or you're living in a vehicle without access to, you know, basic utilities. Um, and I think it that this problem is becoming increasingly visible makes puts it at the forefront of more people's minds. And I I think we need to be recognizing the fact that people who lack legal access to housing have no legal right to space. And without a legal right to space, there is nowhere that they can ca legally carry out the functions and practices of daily life. 
And so to criminalize these practices and to push people along, sweep them out of you know, the spaces where they're living in really, um, really threatens their well-being in a really fundamental way. So given that, do you, do you have advice that you would give to you know, leaders of the city of Eugene about how alternative approaches to the challenges of, of homelessness? I'm, I'm working on this. This is my, my new research project is actually studying these informal methods of sheltering that people who are technically unsheltered while homeless are experiencing and trying to understand the ways that different laws and policies in Eugene and Lane County are impacting their ability to, to maintain stability and kind of um, maintain some sense of, of holistic well-being. Um, but I, I think keeping it... Um, at the center, this idea that people need space in order to live is important, um, but we also need to be thinking creatively about these solutions, um, sort of to the immediate problem of, of unsheltered homelessness. But, you know, it, it's a broader problem. This is, a, this is a national problem that housing is too unaffordable, that wages are too low, that we, have, um, we don't have enough low income housing available for people. Um, so it's a really a, a problem that requires attention on multiple levels and different scales. Uh, I will say that I, I think there is some potential in some of the efforts in, that we see in Eugene, efforts to um, sort of meet people where they're at in terms of, of shelter options without criminalizing their practices. But it's also, I think, uh, we have to walk a fine line um, when we start sort of when the city starts formalizing practices like living in tents and saying, look, it's okay for you to live in, you know, Constantinoga huts in these certain places at the rest stops around Eugene. Um, I do think that can be beneficial for the people living there, but we also can't stop there and send a message that it's acceptable for people to be living in such substandard conditions. Um, and that when the city begins to, um, to formalize those and sanction these practices, that it can send that message that substandard conditions are acceptable for certain populations, and that's not okay as well. So you are you also have another project that you've been working on about manifestations of settler colonialism relating to gentrification, incarceration, and environmental justice. Tell us a little bit about that project. Right. Um, that project came about um, from my research in Detroit, where um, my co-author and I began to think about sort of the lack of sufficient explanations for making sense of sort of broad revitalization in a city like Detroit, right? So there's a lot of talk about Detroit kind of bouncing back and that it's, um, it's gentrifying or it's revitalizing. And in many ways, those typical categories or explanations we use to, to talk about a city as it, it begins to kind of improve doesn't really make sense in a place like Detroit. Um, in large part because we see, because of the centrality of property and land control to how the city begins to change. And so it started with us trying to make sense of what it would mean for a city like Detroit to revitalize and recognizing that we're, we're seeing sort of these, um, the settler colonial structure continuing, right? Continuing to control land and space and resources and take them from longtime residents or inhabitants and sort of apply the private property rights regime in order to shift those into the control of newcomers or people who, who have more um, sort of economic and various other resources and privileges. And then as we were um, sort of focusing on 
the way that settler colonial processes continue to shape contemporary dynamics, we started thinking about other ways that that's happening and other ways we are seeing that in the Michigan context. One of those being with incarceration, right? And the control and removal of, of bodies that are perceived as kind of in the way um, or superfluous. And then also with uh, the, the way that the, um, the state was involved with uh, the poisoning of Flint, Michigan's water supply in 2014, which is ongoing. Um, and so in these different domains, we're using the settler colonial framework to make sense of how these processes are continuing and sort of continue this, um, the, the settler colonial dynamic into contemporary, um, contemporary society and continues to shape things today. So tell us a little bit about the activist work you did uh, with incarcerated people when you were in Michigan. Yeah, I got connected with a group in, um, in a, there's a city within the city of Detroit called Hamtramck. And some um, residents in Hamtramck started the Hamtramck Free School, um, which you can Google um, if you can spell Hamtramck. And um, one of their big efforts was um, outreach with incarcerated people. And a number of people with the free school started going in and doing prison poetry groups um, and writing groups with incarcerated people. And my daughter was an infant at the time. So I was, at that point, I was never going into the prisons, but I was providing a lot of support sort of from the outside um, with a lot of their outreach efforts and fundraising and some of the projects that um, they were doing to kind of um, help connect people who are inside, who are incarcerated with their communities and maintain some of those bonds, um, primarily through um, recording and posting poetry and other artwork online so that their families had access to it. Have you engaged with incarcerated populations since you returned to Oregon? Uh, not explicitly here in Oregon. We're thinking about trying to sort of broaden what we, we call it the incarcerated archive and it's on the free schools website. We're thinking about trying to broaden that and be able to include and post artwork um, and spoken word from people at, you know, uh, facilities across the country if we could. So in addition to being a sociological researcher, uh, a prison activist, you are also a teacher. Yes. Would you tell us a, a little bit about a course that you've been teaching and that you enjoy teaching? Yeah, my favorite course right now is housing and homelessness, and I actually have had the opportunity to teach it twice this year. I taught it in the fall in the Honors College, and I'm teaching it right now in the sociology department. And uh, one of the, I would say the best parts about teaching this class is that my students really recognize that this is a problem, um, in part because they experience the lack of affordability for themselves as students. They also see the problems with homelessness in their community. Um, and some uh, a student in my class in the fall has really taken the issue of, of lack of affordable housing for students to heart and is sort of attempting to expand access to housing programs for students at University of Oregon. So um, University of Oregon, you did your BA at the University of Oregon and then you went off to Michigan and earned your MA and your PhD. And here you are back at the University of Oregon. So what drew you back to uh, the university? So I actually, the, the first time I was, when I was graduating um, with my PhD and I was having a conversation with my advisors about jobs and they said, well, what kind of job do you want? Like, where do you want to try to work in an ideal world? And I said, my dream would be to work at a place like University of Oregon. 
Um, I, I, I love research, right? And University of Oregon is an R1 research institution, but I also really, I care about education being accessible. And I think state universities are a big part of that. Um, and I had such amazing professors here at University of Oregon that I thought there couldn't be anything better than to, to join them as faculty. So when the job posting came up, I knew I had to apply. Well, we're, we're uh, delighted to have you back, Claire. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and learning about your research and your teaching. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. I've been speaking with Claire Herbert, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Her newly published monograph, A Detroit Story, Urban Decline and the Rise of Property Informality was published in March, 2021 by the University of California Press. Thanks so much for watching.